Hello and welcome to the Overly Animated Podcast, where we take animation seriously. I'm Dylan Heisen, and today I'm joined by Michelle Ander. Hello. And today we're so excited to have on the podcast Glitch Tech creators Eric Robles and Dan Milano. Welcome, guys. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Hello. What's up, guys? Yeah, well, thanks, <laughs> thanks so much for being like on. That? Like that, it's, it's kind of like my intro. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm going to try this out. Is that your I'm boosh? With you guys. Yeah, it's like his boosh. Yeah. Yeah, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to just kind of experiment. <laughs> okay, we are so happy to be on here because um, you guys do take uh, animation seriously. And, you know, I think we would rather get a, the harshest criticism from you guys than, than, a, than a compliment from some who don't go to the, the depths that you all do. So, you know, we just appreciate how constructive you are. We, it was such a fun thing for us to... Um, to hear you talk about the show and then started checking out other episodes as well. And so we just genuinely appreciate you. Thank you. Do some, a great cast here. Oh, thank and you so much. We're, we're just happy that somebody takes animation seriously. Cause we mess around too much. So as long- <laughs> <laughs> yeah, somebody's got to do it. I don't think taking it seriously means you can't mess around. Though. I think that's, what <laughs> that's true. It's a balance. <laughs> okay, good. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Well, uh, <laughs> Uh, th- thanks. Uh, yeah, thanks for being on. Congrats on the release of season two of Glitch Text on Netflix now. Um, if you're listening and unfamiliar, you should go check it out. Um, so I think speaking of that, we can hop in to the questions in terms of like how has uh, it felt to have season two out and the reaction you guys have seen. Oh, so good, so good. I can't say enough. It's like we had. There were times where we were worried if you know we were gonna you know birth this child at all and when and 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 this and that and then to kind of have it you know come happen in degrees it was a little nerve-wracking but we're so happy not only that we got to be on netflix but that you know nick developed this show at all and um to have it all out and to see people reacting positively or again thoughtfully it doesn't have to be positive it just has to be you know like something people enjoy discussing, um, but it has been very positive, And so we're pretty thrilled. Wait, Dan, are you, are you saying that it's out already? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it's out already. <laughs> okay, buddy. Nobody told me. Nobody told me. <laughs> you haven't uh, seen uh, all the talk on Twitter about it? Block <laughs> that. Well, you know what? This is a big deal. Uh I, I, you know, we, Eric, are we, you I, only following the network? Because that, that is your know. problem. <laughs> I've, I've, been, I've been watching Nickelodeon all this time waiting for this show. And so now you're telling me it's on Netflix, huh? All right. No, we are so thrilled. Uh, of course, this is huge for us. It, you know, season two, we, we, we had so much uh, to tell and we, we continue to have so much to tell. And we were just kind of like, you know, chomping at the bit to release this thing. And now, you know, when we got the official word that it was coming out, uh, you know, that's, we were even more excited knowing that there were so many little surprises and more of what, you know, people enjoyed from season one, but we felt like we amped it even more with season two. Um, and, and we, we, we just been on this trajectory of wanting to show more, do more with this series as the lore continued to grow for us. So knowing that season two is out and now people, are really excited about uh what we're doing with the show it just makes us that much more happier knowing that we all did you know something that people are really enjoying we're unapologetically giddy and we when the show came out we were like very admittedly like sniffing around going like what do people think what are people talking about it and i remember pulling my car over 
listening to you guys talk and I, and I was glad it was like a lengthy conversation. It was like, Oh, at last, like, it's like, it's like seeing a movie that you want to talk with people about, but yeah. nobody else has ever heard of it or seen it. <laughs> so no, it was not only cool to have you pick it apart, but because you were talking so much about that first batch, I kept thinking, oh, I can't wait until they see season two <laughs> because it was so relevant to a lot of your conversations. So it's extra cool that like now there's a chance like we've been able to hear you guys react and, and talk about it with you. Yeah, we, we were definitely like, these guys get it, man. Because when Dan sent me the link and he sent it to Ian Graham, our supervising producer, um, I was at the gym and it was the best workout I've had because sometimes I hate being on that Stairmaster. And uh, listening to you guys talk about the show just made made that whole experience <laughs> so much He's better. felt so seen. <laughs> um, so, so good. Yeah. So glad and so glad seeing people responding to it uh, more, I feel like, even with season two. Um, yes. Yeah, I feel, I feel like that leads into the like question, like, uh, how has it felt to see this renewed maybe support for this, like, hashtag renew glitch text campaign? Um, and like, what is it? I don't know. How does that make you feel about the show's chances now? I mean, I, I, I feel wonderful because it's it's of the support, like just the fact that people would rally behind something because they believe in it and they, they identify with it most importantly and want to see more. So that obviously feels wonderful. And to be honest, as somebody who just also loves animation and is passionate about our peer shows, I just like that in general, fans also know, well, this is how you do it. You, you politely and clearly, you know, at the people directly that you want to hear you, be it, you know, the, you know, the, the company who produces or the ancillary companies that are involved, you know, because people have that power. You know, I, I so much of Butch Tex is influenced by old school Star Trek. And, you know, that was saved by letter writing campaigns. And whether it works or not, the, the what matters is that people invest that time. And obviously, we prefer it to be in the most non-toxic way that they put those voices together. And so, so far, it seems to be that way. And we're really proud. So we're, we're thankful to everyone who's said they want more. Yeah. And that just the, the, again, the general support is, is probably the biggest thing and, and the most uh, long lasting thing of it all. Right. Because um, whether we continue with the series or not, like the, the mark that we're leaving, we're, you know, it's like leaving a good taste, you know, in people's mouths. Right. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and as they watch the show and enjoy it, like it just becomes a memory for for them and uh, a special part of of their lives in a way because uh, you know I definitely um, know that the shows that I watched growing up like definitely left an impression in me uh, or on me I should say and uh, if we did the same for people out there or kids uh, and adults just the same way then that's already a victory for us. Yeah, our team talked a lot about the things we grew up with and and what we loved about them and it. It wasn't just about like, well, let's lift, you know, the music from this and the image from that and the concept from this. It was more like, why, what, why did we connect to those things? What did we feel? How did they affect our lives or people around us? How can we create something that hopefully resonates as strongly? And then if we can do it, you know, how many others can do it? You know, like, let's yeah. be setting new standards and not that we are setting all the standards but we did reach high and we were inspired by others who do too and so that's why we were grateful to be supported at the studio and by the fans because it says that it matters that it really does matter to people these kind of details yeah that's that's awesome uh yeah and, and i think uh, we've 
needed uh, this rallying of support for glitch checks because of uh, if people are unaware, it had a unique production history of production being stopped mm-hmm. midway through. Um, you know, anything you guys want to say about that experience? And like, I was curious, like, how did it feel to to kind of go through an experience I really haven't seen um, in in a lot of other animated shows? Social media helped it be a little pub- more public than is usual, but mm. these kind of things do happen quite a bit when shows are put on hiatus and glitched over the time we were developing it had been through a couple regimes at nick and we had been supported pretty much all the way through it's pretty miraculous the show got made got greenlighted got the support it did especially as an original ip so we were we come away feeling largely more thankful than anything else i don't know if we could have made this show anywhere but nick to be honest so we have a lot of love for that but the faces of the company change and for a new regime to come in and hit the pause button on a show is not all that uncommon. It just, it happened abruptly and kind of publicly and it did throw us greatly because we, we really were felt we had had momentum, but at the same time, you know, we look back and say, well, we had 20 episodes, which is an initial order, which is by Hollywood, by Hollywood standards, a very clean break. Um, so, you know, Robles, what do you, what do you think? <laughs> no pressure. <laughs> no, I, definitely. I mean, I, you know, everything Dan said is a hundred percent. You know, when you talk about feelings, of course, it hurts, right? Losing your team mid-production, and you know, everybody was so on board, and we had such great momentum. So, you know, uh, having a pause in the middle of what we felt a s- successful production uh, was was really difficult for us. Um, just emotionally, of course, and it took us all a long while to kind of reset and just kind of wrap our heads around what just had happened to us at the time, because we knew we had something really special and we all felt like we had uh, a larger story to tell and everybody was so invested. Again, I, I can't, you know, Dan and I cannot thank the crew enough for the amount of uh, energy, creativity, thoughtfulness and love that they put into this show so you know when it did you know just abruptly stop in that way it definitely um hurt us all like a like a family you know it's like we 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 lost a family member in some weird way and we all just kind of uh you know were hurt by it but the amazing thing i gotta tell you which i've never experienced because like dan said it does happen a lot of times in hollywood right um but the one thing i've never experienced or experienced in a situation like this is the the sense of community that we had and the support we all had for one another. And it really was like one big family with our production where we all were there for each other, even after the fact. And um, I I can never uh, repay the crew for being so supportive, even though, I mean, they had lost their jobs that day. It was one of those things where it's like, they were, they were just as hurt, but just a support of knowing that we all did such a great job, but you know, how many of that crew came to us and said that, you know, they were sorry it would have happened and what can they do? And they continue to support us online and, and which is just incredible. And, you know, I, I try to put on this professional hat to say these things happen and this and that, and they do, but yeah, what, what guts us is that, there are two realities and one is our day-to-day reality with us and our crew. And the other is the day-to-day reality of a a corporation looking at numbers on a page and needing to check certain columns and make certain adjustments. And they're both valid. 
but how they overlap and how they handle each other takes a lot of finesse. And uh, we were gutted by how abrupt it was and the fact that like, not only could we not have closure, but these are immensely talented artists who I would never let walk out the door of any building because, you know, we, you know, we were so proud to have these individuals and it's part of the reason that we mention their names so much um, in social media and we want fans to, to follow them and know who they are because in comics, we know who does our inking and our penciling and our lettering and our covers. And, you know, it's important. I think that people start investing in the talent because if the public does, then the companies have to, and it's not just moving numbers around. It's saying, well, this is an individual, where do I put them? How do I utilize them? Should I, you know, should I make this decision just for the cost or is there something else I may stand to lose? So that's the kind of systemic problem, but you can also treat Nick like an evil empire. They, there have been very tumultuous changes in the corporate landscape and the media landscape for all the companies right now. And you know, God knows what they deal with, you know? So we just have tried to say that, you know, it was all unfortunate, but we tried to not just take it personally because at the end of the day, it's art and business. Yeah, it's, it, you know, the whole cancellation was way bigger than Glitch Text, right? It, it, you know, the, the, the company definitely uh, was super supportive, you know, and we wouldn't have made the show uh, without them. And we wouldn't have, you know, the kind of animation and, and the liberty to create uh, an original IP without Nickelodeon really supporting us. So that definitely wasn't the, the issue. It was a bigger problem, you know, that the company was kind of like working, uh, working on. And luckily... Uh, we had the support of Netflix that really knew what we had. We had an executive, Megan Casey, that used to work with us as our executive um, in charge on Netflix, who left Nickelodeon and went over to Netflix and just went over there telling them how amazing this show was. So with that kind of rumor, uh, Netflix was like, wow, well, what do you guys really have over there at Nickelodeon? You know, this glitch tech show. So it really allowed us to uh, build a new relationship with um, Netflix, which is amazing because it just kind of allowed us to, um, instead of putting us on cable where you can maybe catch us at 7 p.m. or maybe catch us at 3 between this show and that other show, uh, Netflix allowed us to just kind of say like, hey, we exist. Here we are. You want it all? It's yours. <laughs> so, it, it, you know, it all turned out great for us eventually. And even though that was a rough time for us, like it all turned out great. Everybody's you know, um, gets to enjoy the show, uh, for what it is now. So that's a, that a long answer, wasn't it? For <laughs> very informative though. <laughs> yeah, definitely. And, uh, I, thing I was thinking of Dan's talking about the amazing artists on the show, like, uh, glitch text animation visuals, something that stands out so much to me. Um, yeah. definitely want to know, like from you guys, what you think is, uh, like what, makes it so distinctive like what what's different from maybe other shows about like the process or anything that like has has resulted in such a success in this area um yeah i mean i i don't mind taking it dan if you don't mind nope, uh, nope go you. ahead there's a few things <laughs> well i'll tell you this show uh, i definitely had a vision for it uh you know way before it even was a concept um i had been in love with um a French anime series called Wakfu that I discovered back in like 2006. 
And I just loved how it was made it with both flash and traditional animation. And I love that they knew how to spend their money uh, as far as the production goes. And what that, that, what that means for a series like that was they would use their flash for a lot of basic talking heads type scenes. And then they would spend their money on like the big, awesome action scenes. And I had never seen a production uh, run that way where they were just being very strategic on how to spend their money. Other, also, like Japanese anime does the same thing, right? Like they do those long-winded talks, you know, with just one frame, right, of somebody standing there talking. And, um, you know, these guys uh, on the series had managed to do just that. And I was like, wow, that's super smart. Um, if I ever get a chance to uh, do another show after I had finished Fanboy and Chum Chum, I was like, I want to want to do something like this in this vein where, yes, it's action and great story, but also the visuals um, would look sharp, you know, in the sense of like the models would stay on model. Um, because a lot of times when you do send your animation overseas, you don't know who's animating it, and um, you can have one animator doing one scene here, another animator doing another scene, but the models look kind of wonky. Like, you know, they kind of start changing shapes and what have you. Like, so your character doesn't look 100% like the character. It starts morphing into, like, a weird version of your characters. But I was like, what's, what was great about Flash, I was like, it stays on model regardless. And then when you're doing action scenes, nobody needs that action scene to stay 100% on model. And you actually want the model to look differently in those scenes. So when it came around to uh, producing glitch text, I was like, I want to use that same kind of technique. And luckily, um, again, that was with Flash back then, but then now we had advanced to Harmony. And Harmony definitely had that same kind of formula where you can do those types of scenes. The models would stay on model. You can get high quality, um, high you know production value um, if you produce it in a smart way. So if you look at glitch text, you have scenes that are talking heads and the models look like basic models, right? And then all of a sudden you break into these amazing action scenes that really just kill it for us, right? It's just like, you're like, holy, where, where did this come from, right? And that's where we, we, we figured out how to best spend our money in this, uh, you know, with a show like this. So we went ahead and teamed up with a studio. Uh, and Well, we built a, a studio out there in uh, Paris, France. Um, it was Studio 100. Uh, they, they hadn't done um, Harmony before, but they were willing to build a team uh, with artists that Ian Graham and myself uh, personally uh, handpicked a lot of these animators because we're big fans of their work and we handpicked them and offered them jobs to go work uh, at a studio out there in, in France and so a lot of these amazing action sequences and the uh, the comp that you see on the show the final kind of like coloring and look of it all um, was from a lot of the talent that we got out there and we'll dropping uh, the video about that soon that shows some of the compositing for the episode buds because once that was broken down for us, we realized how much was actually going into it. I mean, more than we even considered. Um, yeah. uh, and and how that brought like a very dimensional look. It affected lighting. It cleaned up, you know, um, any animation that was a little wonky. It just did wonders to help the overall look. And it helped keep uh, animation from the various studios we worked with. Like it was the common denominator that really helped the show maintain its overall uh look from one studio to another 
Yeah, we also had another studio uh, called uh, Top Draw in the Philippines who really kind of like just helped us clean and polish like the show um, while keeping the integrity of all that like really cool animation that the French were doing um, in Paris. And Flying Bark, who um, was actually scheduled for Rise of the Ninja Turtles, they they helped us set the tone with uh, a couple episodes as well. And um, every, everybody kind of shared some assets, philosophies, and a pipeline that got streamlined as we went along. And we were kind of a well-oiled machine by the end. Um, the only other minor uh, adjustments were that Ian Graham, who you can see a lot of his uh, the episodes of Legend of Korra he directed right now on Netflix. Um, and he also came from, you know, Avatar, Invader Zim, and SpongeBob. He he had a few theories he wanted to test that Eric doubled down on, and the two of them had a lot of theories about things like, you know, letting the board artists have more time in the schedule um, in their initial thumbnails than they normally do, and and giving them less time for revision at the end, but by front loading it. Uh, we had much more confident storyboards. The artists could explore and try things. They didn't have to use their first idea. Um, that that created very inspired boards. And in general, there was a lot of respect among the departments. So, you know, I we would make sure that the writing would consult with design and production on concept so that we didn't go off and just write something impossible and then hand it off. We all talked from the get-go about not only what was producible, but what's exciting. If you see an episode that has Miko dancing in it, that's because we knew one of our board artists was studying dance in his cubicle at lunch every day just because he was nerding out about it. Oh, wow. And we thought, hey, if we bake dance into this episode, he is going to sink his teeth into that. And so it was also just going like, how do we take advantage of all these amazing people and set them up to, to do amazing things. And in turn, they put so many fingerprints on the show and became invested emotionally. And that eventually extended to the animators. You know, we tried to have a enough of a personal relationship with them uh, to at least say please and thank you to let them see, you know, a little bit of the work they were doing as it was coming out the other end to just let them know, hey, you're making something special, you know. Because it's hard work, so you want to just keep that morale up. I, I would say all those things contributed to the look and the ability to put so much on the screen. Awesome. There, yeah, ton of interesting stuff in there. Um, that was really good. Michelle, do you have any follow-ups or direction you want to go in? I mean, it's it's really cool to hear about how collaborative your workplace is because we, we've we had a few interviews now with a few different creators and it seems like everyone's kind of organization and approach to doing something so collaborative that as is show making is very, like it, it, it kind of comes across pretty differently depending on the group of people. And I think especially the fact that you, you paid so much attention to your crew team that like you were leaning into the things they were already interested in and yeah. you weren't just giving them opportunities to succeed. You were helping them thrive um, in a way that really was tailored, it seems, to some of their internal interests, which I imagine is like so good for them, just like in terms of like being a creative person with like a full-time job and wanting to make a show as good as it can possibly be. And you can definitely tell the heart and soul put into a lot of the animation, not even like the stuff that's necessarily very grandiose, but just like yeah. how emotive all the characters are. And 
just how fluid everything feels all the time. Like it's all so clean and pretty and just nice to look at like point blank. And it's just so good. And I'm so glad to know that the crew themselves were so well accounted for and there was so much integrity there. So it's just nice to know, frankly. <laughs> it's you. pretty wholesome. <laughs> no, yeah. No. yeah. Thank you for saying all that. I mean, uh, uh, again, it's, it, it really was a, a unique uh, experience for us because, you know, I, I've been fortunate to, uh, you know, have two shows now. And, you know, we had so much fun on Family and Chum Chum. Um, and I, I learned so much by the time I got to season two on that show that mm-hmm. by the time, uh, you know, Glitch Takes came around, I, I definitely knew what worked and what didn't work, you know, in running a production and, you know, from the get-go when I met Dan, um, you know, I, I wanted to share. I, you know, I, I didn't want to feel like I'm the only guy, like, carrying a show. And I wanted to yeah. share. And Dan w- already had the attitude of, like, yeah, let's just play. Let's bring a lot of, like, of our friends together and we can all play and, and, and have fun. And so, you know, we just imagined it, like, we weren't working for Nickelodeon or any big company. We had our own little like company, you know, and we were all just having a good time making it. And that's how we treated our crew and we treated ourselves. And I think, you know, it shows in in the product. It can be infectious, you know, like when Eric and I met, um, we hadn't worked with each other before. We were kind of put together on an assignment because Jenna Boyd, who was, um, developing animation at Nick at the time, she thought that we would hit it off and we did. And the two points of chemistry on glitch text were one was like the Ghostbusters factor. We were both huge ah. fans and he had an amazing supernatural investigator idea. And I was such a hardcore Ghostbusters nerd. I used to write sequels to those movies, like in my notebooks at, during like, you know, um, what was supposed to be like my mock trial class, you know, in, in like high school and stuff. Yes. So, um, but the other thing was hearing him talk about his, his feeling about artists and about working with artists. That was the real thing we hit it off on. Cause I had a largely an improv background and a lot of stuff where I was making videos with my friends for public access TV and the independent film channel. So it was really that spirit of like almost Muppety putting a show on kind of vibe. Mm, And um, when you come up that way, you sort of take it with you into the industry. And a lot of the people we worked with, like Ashley Birch and Felicia Day and Sandeep Parikh, and they, they, that's what they did. You know, they made Legend of Neil and the Guild and Hey Ash, what you playing? And so, you know, everyone had a real DIY philosophy and uh, it was great to be able to say, well, how, how can we create our own rule system where we're organized? It's not chaos um, and it's not committee, but everyone gets a voice. That was the one rule. It's like, we will listen to you. Um, and if you're a board artist on our show, you're going to come to the notes meetings, whether we're talking about your sequence or not because we want you to hear what the whole story is about, what uh, other uh, artists and team members are going to be doing so you can help each other and be part of the whole. And then let, let everybody have a really organic conversation. And, um, you know, we just found it really rewarding. We didn't always know if it was going to work or not, but as the animatics came in, we got pretty confident pretty fast. Nice. No, very cool. I think speaking of like people like Felicia Day and, 
uh, Ashley Birch. Uh, so Glitch Tech is all about like video games, gaming culture. How did you mm-hmm. how did you guys approach uh, or like tap into kids nowadays relation to gaming? <laughs> I was so terrified because I was like, Eric, we're in our 40s. <laughs> if we just try to do everything I mean, we know, I, which was a lot. I'm still 17, technically. Yeah. So, well, I was, you know, not. <laughs> no, we, for it. I'm we, such a we, dad. We definitely knew, uh, you know, we were up against uh, a huge challenge. It's such a scary place to be when you know it could be something you could be judged on so immediately, right? Well, we're um, fans and we cringe easy. So we know what a cringe is. And we're like, oh, gosh, we got to make sure that we, you know, cringe proof. <laughs> but, but but at the same time we 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 wanted to have fun you know and that's the thing yeah you know we we use so much like of the gaming terms here and there what have you but you should see the smiles on these kids faces right like when they connect to it and 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 that's the stuff that no matter what like if it might be cringy to some like there's kids out there who are just smiling and ultimately that is everything to us right like making sure that we connect with the kids because ultimately that's who it should be for first right and if we're lucky enough to you know get the the teenagers and the 20 sums and 30s 40s and so on and so forth like that that's all bonus for us right but ultimately it's like the memories that we live with the kids is is really everything for us and um we just wanted to make sure that we respected the uh the culture as well so that's when dan was like you know what we need to get consultants we need to really kind of figure out you know what what is the stuff that is not being represented out there when it comes to games. What are the things that are being said? What are not, what's not being said? Um, what's good? What's bad? What's poisonous? You know, like all these things that we had in our head. And so again, we were very fortunate enough to have Nickelodeon really back us. And we wanted to bring in consultants and, you know, Dan, you can get further into this, but we had a retreat where we, we were lucky enough to get, um, such amazing, uh, amazing group of people together from all over the gaming industry to really, you know, guide us in in what was happening in the culture, as opposed to, you know, us kind of just playing on our own, like we really wanted to tap in into the market and really understand it in a whole different way and do our research like any Pixar film would do, right? Like any major, like awesome film would do, they'd go out there and they try to understand what they're making before they make it. We took a live action approach. Uh, you know, I was kind of a frustrated live action writer. And I and it was like, oh, if I was writing, you know, Buffy the Vampire Slayer or Doctor Who or a genre show that I could really enjoy or Star Trek, something that would borrow enough from reality that I would use, you know, actual language from aerospace, from particle physics, from programming, you know, as my basis for my science in my fiction uh and then uh, to bring in an emotional validity right and say you know i joke that we wanted to freshen up the references but it was really more about just to say let's have all these points of views into the culture besides Ah. our and so we were able to say look what you know to look at everyone around that table and say i want you all to picture what the most insincere product version of this show would be you know what it what in your most dark cynical heart would be 
all the things missing from this that that you're starving for and have been since you were a kid you know and how can we do the opposite how can we guarantee that and some things were obvious we just knew we didn't want to see geek and gamer culture treated like lovable underdogs who succeed despite their social handicaps because that's not just hacky it's completely false it is not anyone's reality um for a long time in the culture that we're currently in you know the pop culture and in the way we relate to families and friends it's completely changed and gamification is a large part of the reason that's brought so many people together um it bridges so many gaps so how do we address that you know how do we address you know toxic aspects of gaming how do we uh, uh, talk about gender in gaming and but without actually making them insincere lessony weird you know ideas how do we just bake basic representation into a you know kind of inventive monster of the week format that's a little bit serialized so our characters can grow and you know thankfully the people we asked had so much to say it's really all they talked about was what was missing and what it meant to them that it wasn't there and what they would like to see if they could and then that led to them not just consulting but many of them actively writing on the show as well oh wow that's so cool to know like it makes so much sense in retrospect that you would have like gone out of your way to find so many people who could speak to this on a level that you might not not necessarily have like I certainly like don't consider myself a gamer and I've said that on the podcast but I mean, watching this show, it feels like you have found this really nice balance of figuring out how to be very positive about gaming and culture and, and how, like, normal, frankly, it is for, like, pretty much all kids now, it seems, without, yeah. like, not also having conversations about, like, you know, like, girls might and large, like, tend to like things like phone app games and how they're not lesser games and, like, PC games or, like, Xbox games yeah. or that... There are conversations about like, oh, like, what is modding? Is that a good or bad thing? And how does that impact the gaming community? And how does gaming impact social circles? And are those like legitimate social circles that kids can have friendships on? Or are they like not as good as like traditional ways of finding friends like around town, which right. I understand like, you know, parents can still kind of think that way because gaming's just not the same for them as it is for kids now. And I feel like you found a, maybe just because like, the majority of this is just presented so positively in this show, but it's just like you found a very nice balance of being able to have these sincere conversations without shying away from the complexities of gaming culture. And I just like, I, I think it's really impressive. I, I, and it's just nice to know you had so many people who were kind of experts on this that were able to lend that sincerity to the show itself by having more of a voice in it too. I guess that's just part of the collaboration you guys have been going for from the beginning, but that's another area that just seems like it, it really helps with the show's authenticity. It yeah. really came through in ways we couldn't have expected, which was amazing. Yeah. And we, we, we definitely, uh, you know, you, you mentioned something, just kind of the positivity of it all, you know, it's, uh, Dan and I, you know, we, we became immediate friends, right? And the, the, the good thing about it is, even though him and I have very different backgrounds on, you know, how we grew up or what have you, we we had the love of you know Ghostbusters right we had <laughs> of, of you know animation and and culture, movies and culture and like 
and there was an immediate friendship like you do when when you're a kid and you know one of the things that you know i always keep in mind is like you know watching my son who's 10 years old you know it's just like when he was small like he would go to the playground and immediately just go up to any random kid and just say hey do you want to play and then the other kid would be like yeah let's go play and boom they're immediate friends and the innocence and purity of that it's just so awesome and it you know, I wish we lived in a world like that, right? And I just felt that um, we had that on our, you know, with Dan and I, we became immediate friends. And I was like, man, this is so cool to just have a friend immediately, right? And if we can tap into something that that's pure, just like those best friends that you have growing up, if you can tap into just something that's pure, and you can start with that as your foundation, then man, what a nice show that would be, right? And so we wanted to make sure that Five and Nico, and again, we got it wrong the first time. We actually, our pilot that that um, that we initially did that got the show greenlit did not start that way. I mean, Five was already a glitch tech and Miko was the problem. She had a glitch, right? Oh, and so, yeah. yeah, so so we learned, right? Because we were just kind of like, oh man, he doesn't like the fact that this girl can't reset and now she just became uh, his problem. Meanwhile, there's a glitch out that's loose and it's a burden almost to have her around even though she was so fun. Yeah, it wasn't joy joyful in a way. It was like more a stress test of to like get to the end of the episode, complete the episode problem. The delightful character is ah. just kind of an obstacle. But this is when you develop with a concept first in a way. We didn't really right. know Five and Miko were. They were more archetypes. You know, it was like the uptight guy and the and the impulsive girl. And we knew we wanted them to be more, but we were leading with concept. And until we met Monica Ray, who very quickly, who started to embody Miko, and until we started to, to ask questions and have executives who we trusted ask questions like, who are these kids? What does the gaming mean to them? What does being a glitch tech mean to them personally? It can't just be how cool it is. Right. It's got to be something emotionally tied to them, which opens up the whole conversation for how we frame the rest of the show um, to always make that the central question about any story, the core of any relationship, because we had so many cool concepts, almost too many, an intimidating amount. And the only way we could choose what, where to focus our attention was if we led with the character aspect, um, which got easier to do with every episode because we started to get to know them more and more. Right. And then that again, just uh, going back to, to that, it was just kind of the purity of their friendship that really kind of like once we discovered, um, you know, what kind of friends these two could be, um, then we figured out like at least they'll have each other in these adventures, right? And then they'll have each other's back. And, and so through thick and thin, you know, they'll be there for one another. And I think that's the part that really kind of like, um, we fell in love with and we knew that we can throw any kind of monsters at these guys or glitches or what have you. Right. But, you know, starting from a place of friendship was really kind of, uh, the magic that happened for us. And then like Dan said, yeah. then really kind of digging into, um, you know, uh, who these kids were and, and why they were going on adventures and what games meant to them personally. That's when we really kind of like found or struck gold, you know, as yeah. far as adventures go. And the idealism is very much like the original Star Trek. It's like a future you want to see, you know, kids who yeah. who do have it, have the capacity to, to 
have some emotional maturity and be able to listen to one another and talk to one another when they need to, that kind of communication, which is the core of any friendship. But we also never wanted to like make them seem like freaks for wanting those shoes to pre-order the shoes or wanting to obsess over their favorite animatronic because that stuff's real. That's not mm-hmm. something you make fun of. Those are obsessions that a lot of us feel and we they're meaningful. So you can't say, you know, call judgment and say that it's not valid. You just have to show, hey, it's a balance. You know, I can be obsessed with this thing. Over right next to that, this is a person, this is my friend. They do come first in a sense. Like I can have both in my life if I just compartmentalize. And that's kind of one of the major themes of the show. Awesome. Um, I, I definitely wanted to ask about the show's uh, racial diversity. So much of it um, and really, I think really stands out to a lot of us. Uh, how did like generally, how did you guys uh, approach that? It came up pretty organically by the casting of, you know, Monica as Miko, um, who's from a mixed race family. And then, you know, High Five was based very much on Eric's childhood growing up. Um, Sandeep Parikh was in the writing cast. We knew we wanted him as Hanish. And, you know, we just started populating the show with the people who were on the show and around the show and in our mm-hmm. culture. The one that was the most deliberate was uh, we were working with a writer named David Anaxagoras who created a show for Amazon called um, Gordimer Gibbons' Life on Normal Street, which is a beautiful show. And he was lamenting that that show ended before he had been able to introduce um, this uh, Muslim female character to the cast. And there's a huge range of people that uh, identify as Muslim with or without hijabs and all that. But it started the discussion that, you know, if he was able, he wasn't able to do it on that show. Well, let's just do it now. Like we're just starting a show. Why don't we just create that character here? And what's great about this show is we took that idea to Eric and Ian and our lead designer, Scott Kakuda, who were already developing the show was kind of the the ship on that was kind of sailing. We were committing to our designs, but we said, Hey, we want this character. And they said, okay. And then we said, we called up, we went to Nick and said, Hey, we we just just added this character. And they said, okay. Yeah. I mean, you know, that's the thing. I I mean, I've, I've worked in this industry for a really long time and I just don't understand why some people are so narrow, narrow minded about just, just adding and, and having fun with, with, the possibilities right and immediately when dan brought that idea in uh, of ad- adding this character we just immediately started sketching her we were like that would be awesome how cool is that i mean our cast was already without realizing we weren't thinking like hey we want to make a real diverse show <laughs> you know right. we weren't ordering off the menu or anything you know? <laughs> mm-hmm. we, we were trying to strategize this show to be honest with you it's i'm born and raised in los angeles right so everybody around me was different all the time and that's what makes la so awesome right because you can go anywhere and it doesn't matter you can have uh, African-American friend, you can have an Asian friend, you can have a Latino friend, you can have a white friend. It doesn't matter. You guys are all just kind of in this melting pot. And in this show, it just felt like, you know, we were just creating cool people we wanted to hang, hang out with. And it didn't matter, you know, uh, where they came from and who they were. So that's why we never made a big thing of Zara. Like, you know, oh, my gosh, hey, what's your religion? Where are you from? Right. <laughs> 
we just treat them like friends, right? Like, uh, you know, wow, she's really good at X, Y, and Z, just like you would with anybody else, right? If somebody's really good at a sport, you, you're noticing them for their for their talent as opposed to like, wow, that African-American uh, football player is really good, right? <laughs> you just, you, you don't function that way. You just kind of naturally accept people, well, you should at least uh, accept people for who they are and and that's what we wanted to represent with the show. It's just like everybody's just kind of like cool and different in their own way, regardless of their their race or their skin color or anything else. Right. Their gender matter. Uh, because it's animation, there is a thing where you do have to make deliberate choices. So we would try to find out, though. But what is what is something that's not on the sleeve, but does add to someone's character? So. Five slipping into casual Spanish is something so many people who are bilingual do. That's one great way. Um, you know, in talking about Zara, we actually we had a lot of action scenes. And so board artists would wonder, like, should the hijab come off? Should it blow in the wind? What should happen? So we spoke to the Muslim Public Affairs Council and they said, oh, it happens all the time. And the hair is constantly <sighs> slipping out. Um it is not traditionally those who wear a hijab, this is why they wear it, and this is or some of the reasons they wear it, and this is why they would not typically be shown that way. However, it led to a great moment where, you know, Zara is frazzled and having a moment and a stray hair comes out of that hijab and she tucks it behind her ear. The fact that that could be a human moment for someone universally, honestly, whether they can identify as a Muslim or not, but if you are uh, a Muslim female who's had to keep your hair in there, then that's a moment where you can sort of identify. Um, Hanish refers to one of the elder characters on our show who's a customer, a female customer, and he calls her auntie, which is just like a, you know, a, a phrase used to, for when you respect an Indian elder. So that came out. And, and that's just the cast also being open and saying, oh, here's something that my character might do, you know, and um, so that was all obviously, you know, in the mix, just kind of a general awareness. Um, I know we're taking a lot of time, but super quick, I'll say that the initial character of Mitch Williams was a little broader, a little more buffoon, cartoonish like villain. And, um, you know, and I guess I will, I, I guess I have to admit that there was never any color drawings of him that I remember, but I guess the default was, was white, but we didn't see him as a white character. So we just cast for people. And in walked Luke Youngblood, who was amazing. And he said, um, should I do my American accent? And I was like, <laughs> what? He's like, yeah, usually I do an American accent. And I was like, no, I, you know, just, no. Do, just be you, whatever. And he got in there and we thought, this guy's amazing. Yeah. And the first thought was, we have to write him apart. We have to come up with a character for him. He was auditioning for Mitch. But I remember thinking, oh, he's just amazing. We have to write him apart. And then almost like, I don't know, 15, 20 minutes later, I think Eric and I were in the hallway going, well, wait, why can't he just be Mitch? I mean, we'll just, we don't have to create something new. We'll just tailor that part slightly. It's just a slight redesign. Yeah, and we, then we get this we, amazing character now. <laughs> we, we had the, the black and white design of Mitch. Uh, we were working on it. Um, and, you know, after that initial audition, you know, that he still had that really cool hair. So again, <laughs> we weren't thinking African-American. We just knew that he was a cool looking kind of dude. And we were like, no, 
this guy is awesome. And you know what? Luke Youngblood is just cool, man. Let's just make this guy Mitch. Keep that hair. Like, like it's just going to be perfect. And we don't really see that often. So let's just keep it and run with it. Because this guy, if anybody can own that role, and, you know, <laughs> it would be this guy. And we ran with it. And we were so happy that we did. That's that's awesome. Um uh, I, I know you guys have 10 episodes written already, but like either from that or from generally like and even further in the future, are there any um, vaguely any like plot threads you're like kind of most excited to maybe tackle if uh, if there's more episodes? Well, we definitely we definitely follow up on the, the mention of Bolipius in one of the episodes we've already locked. Um, we, we do have Ridley and, and, and a really interesting new character come into the show. Um, you guys are the first that we'll confirm with that. We actually did work with, uh, Kevin Eastman on, on an episode of Glitch Test. Oh man. Um, and that is, uh, and it's like second animatic, I think. And, and, you know, the script is locked and we just didn't get to finish that one yet, but most of them are. Uh, of the 10 that we were, that were picked up in 2018 are recorded, boarded, and just waiting for animation or maybe like one last board pass, but most of them are ready to animate. And, you know, you know, we do have a lot more we wanted to say in terms of the story and the, and the characters. You know what, Dan, I think you're being really careful and you're underselling <laughs> it, man. Uh, I'm just going to, I'm just going to, Kind of say it here, man. When I'm a fan, I like to unpack it. I like to go see. <laughs> I'm gonna unpack that. this, baby. I'm gonna unpack it right here, right now, man. Uh, <laughs> a better year than the, the the truth is, yes. I mean, Bolipius is a huge episode for us, Dan. I mean, like like that's a huge reveal for us, right? And uh, it does continue the, the 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 what we set up uh, early in season one, and the payoff is pretty amazing. Like the the discovery of everything that leads to Bolipius is huge for us. And um, yeah, we did uh, have this Ninja Turtles episode that is just amazing. Mm. And so many great episodes that we just have. And um, going back to Casino. Uh, and yeah, Casino. Oh, gosh, yeah. there was, we, were, we were definitely on a roll in, in, in figuring out, you know, what the story was. Especially turn to Castle Stein because oh, we wanted yeah. to reduce some of those assets, and we did it in a very interesting way. It's yeah. not typical, but we did go back to Castle Stein. Uh, yeah, we that episode returned to Castle Stein, which is so good. Uh, gosh, there, there, there's so many ones that you know we we have loaded, and <laughs> it's just crazy. That's why we were so stunned, you know, when we were put on hold because we we're like, but but. You know, and we have such great episodes that are loaded, and uh, we were just so excited to to show the world um, where this story was going to go, and 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 where these characters would end up. Uh, so it's de- definitely something that it's so hard to stay quiet about. But you guys are the first to kind of get a little bit more information on this. Oh man, it's Maybe. so exciting to know about <laughs> those great things that are just waiting <laughs> to be seen. Is it a crossover of Ninja Turtles? Is it well, an inspired I mean, and video now game? We're wondering. You know, that's, that's what we I'm thinking. Is like super. We we always try to find a really conceptual way to do things. So, like, look, we all love 
there there are cinematic tropes for a reason, but we try to Mm -hmm. do them in a way that's different. The clip show is probably the best example I can give of that, where when faced with having to do a clip show, you at least make a list of all the things that are going to be horrible about it and turn them into positives. Ah. Or you take what you think the expectation of a Turtles episode would be and you try to do something new with it. I mean, our, our fans may be well ahead of what we might do at this point, but um, it, it was really fun and really unique. But we always have a checklist, and we also ask the artists, like, if you could get loose on the turtles, what do you? What would you want to do? What would you be so upset if we didn't do it um, when you had the opportunity? So we got a big list, and these are a lot of board artists that went on to do Rise of the Ninja Turtles last couple shows because they left Glitch and moved over there. Um, So, you know, we tried to incorporate as much as we could to just take advantage of what it means. And what I will say is that Five is a big fan. (laughs) (laughs) Just like the rest of us. No, And and again, true to Glitch Tech's kind of like style, we did it in a way that fits our world, as opposed to trying to do some some weird like, hey, you know, the portal opened and now you're in our world. Like. We definitely didn't want it to be like the Flintstones meet the Jetsons, as cool as that was when I was a kid. <laughs> you know, we just felt that that would be insincere to to the reality of our world. And yet it lets us look at something like, what is fandom? What is our relationship with these things we love and these characters we love? And, you know, what is the yeah. wish for of being able to look those characters in the eye, you know? Oh, man, so, many, really so much thoughtful. exciting stuff. <laughs> Uh, Michelle, do you want to, any other follow-ups there? Or you want to pick one of the last questions here? Oh, jeez. Yeah, we, we definitely had more questions, but in the <laughs> service of time, I guess maybe a good all-around question would just be, what are some of each of your favorite episodes and follow-up? Did any of the episodes end up evolving in ways you didn't initially expect, or do they send, do they tend to stay pretty firm once you lock them in, like in the write-up stage? That's a Great question, Eric. What you? Why don't you go first? Yeah. So was the first question. Uh, what are favorites? Our favorites? Mm-hmm. Oh man, that's it's <laughs> um, a, a hard question. Um, I, I you know again, it, it, it's it's not going to be the answer you want because like it's it really is a tough question, right? Like one and two, uh, w- or basically the first episode, right, uh, of Glitch Text. Uh, you get to introduce the characters, um, in a way that took its time and you really got to know Miko and five from the very beginning and you saw that friendship grow. Right. So Mm -hmm. there's something really special about that. That feels very different from the rest of the cinematic. Yeah. It's a lot more cinematic. So I I just love that episode for that reason. Um, And then once you start getting to episode um, going, going gauntlet, right. When you meet Allie for the first time and you see that relationship again of, Five and Miko and him trusting her and and saying, you know, that he believes in her, right? Like, there's just these moments in every episode that you can just kind of grab and take to heart. And I think that's kind of um, my way out of this question is that, like, (laughs) truly, truly, like, there's just the different elements in every episode. And some are just really cool, right? Like, uh, I mean, you know... Well, one of my favorite villains is, you know, Nagrog, right? Because he's just so funny and flamboyant and awesome and great. And and just the struggle of that whole episode is amazing. So every one of them has something really special. 
And then to your second question, like, I think every episode kind of like evolved in its own way, but we definitely would get it wrong sooner than later. So if something wasn't working, we would know right away, as opposed to like seeing two animatics of the thing and then realizing like, oh man, we got to rewrite this. So, you know, we would see the problems up front and then just be like, oh, wow, okay, that's the problem. Let's all get together and, and figure out a solution for this thing. And when I say all together, I really mean like entire crew would come together and we would all try to problem solve um, to come up with the best episode that we could. Uh, so, so, you know, there were episodes, I believe, um, a couple episodes like um, Smashazors, like really changed, uh, you know, Smashazors, Buds. Um... Yeah, I'm Mitch Williams. Um, oh. uh, uh, Adventures in Pet Training. Uh, those are some of the biggest. But, you know, like Eric is saying, uh, Ian Graham was really proud that because we took the chance to put more boarding time at the head of the process, we had less revision time at the end. However, he, he was really proud to say that we never rebroke a story after the initial thumbnail, which is the very first mm. visual board. From that point forward, it was always a matter of refinement, tremendous refinements, which allow the details to be so sharp. Um, and those refinements could be intense, but we never threw out a story and started over. Same cannot be said for the scripts, though. The scripts, <laughs> it was a real struggle because... Look, I'll be the first to admit, as the as the writing showrunner, it's like I was still figuring out what the show is. I, I, yeah. you know, we had rules, theories, opinions, thematics, but the nuts and bolts of this show was the track was being laid as the train was running. So I think it would be much more of a pleasure to have a bunch of writers come in to write for a show that they've already seen twenty episodes of, but we were figuring it out. So. The writers were so amazing in really buckling down and like being willing to rebreak and rebreak until we found some what some of these stories needed to be. And sometimes it was a matter of simplicity. Like Smashazor started as a dinosaur from a Parappa type game. And the writer Jeff Trammell, who's an amazing writer and story editor now, um, yes. he he had this great concept of Casino as like a rapping dinosaur. <laughs> he wrote amazing songs and he and Five had a rap battle at the end and the, the emotions were a little more intense and if you can believe it. Um, but anyway, all that had to be refined, not just for production reasons, but like the focus of the show and how we do things visually and what the text can and can't do and how they do it. And so... That happened with a lot of the stories. I think with Mitch Williams, that was originally about him as a pro streamer, but it took place like in an arena and it was like a more of a, a, a live game that a, that a glitch was getting loose and, and Five and Miko had to bust a glitch that was affecting Mitch in this big game. But there was always a misunderstanding, um, but it just got refined to the story we ultimately told. Um, so yeah, someday we can talk about that but a lot of the episodes went through a big process i think the ones that went through the least revision were the real glitch text and settling the score um which came a little later in the process and i wrote settling the score so i didn't i didn't have to get notes from myself that, that helped. <laughs> that's true <laughs> you know i kind of knew what i i kind of knew what i was gonna say and by then i also had a very 
easy working relationship with Eric and, and the network and Ian. And so it, we just got in our stride, you know, I think. We had a lot to prove in the first half too, you know, the network. Yeah. To, the, to their credit, Megan Casey really let us try things and she would wait to pull us back only if she saw things weren't working. She always gave us a chance to prove what we wanted to do. They did internal testing that gave them encouragement when kids responded positively. Um, and enough can't be said for how Megan actually gave us amazing notes. She always forced us to go back and ask the important questions about our story. Um, and it was the best interaction I ever had with an executive because she really did. Um, she, you know, if we set a bar, she held us to it. She even used to joke like, hey, if you guys just wanted to be like this and that show, this meeting would have ended a half hour ago. But no, <laughs> you guys got to be all about, you know, and we'd laugh because she was right. You know, we'd make these speeches and then she'd say, all right, well, then show it to me. Put it in the story. Wow. You know, it, it can't just be cool, guys. It has to be, you know, I, I have to feel something. Yeah, it's got to mean something. So, so yeah. it's great to have mentors like that who, if you would get tired and lazy, your executives, your board artists, your production staff will come to you and say, hey, you know, I think you guys need to, have you looked at this or have you thought of it? <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know? we, we, we were being checked by everybody. So that was good. Yeah. yeah. Awesome. Awesome stuff. Well, thank you. Then we're out of time. Thank you guys for, for so much for joining thank us. Thank you so much. <laughs> this is really enlightening, honestly, and really encouraging yeah. to know stuff like this is being made in such a thoughtful way. I agree so much. So much good stuff. Thank you for those teases for the future episodes. Yes. That was very exciting. Uh, so everyone's got to go watch Glitch Text on Netflix now so we can get the see those episodes made. Totally. Yeah, tweet it, Nick. Tell them yeah. you want it. We have more power than we think, apparently. So let's use it for a good cause. <laughs> <laughs> it's true. We we've been on the other side and we we see people, you know, who absorb it sometimes. So they are watching, but don't yeah. let them discount you. You know, how you come at them is important too because yeah. you don't want to give them excuse to be like, "Oh, those guys don't like anything." Cuz <laughs> that's, that's the worst. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. yeah. And and just again, an overall just thank you to you guys and all the fans out there who have been supporting us. I mean, it really is something that means a lot to us, especially, you know, when we've been working for so many years on this project and um, to know that you guys are enjoying it and the interviews uh, that you guys, or just kind of the podcast that you guys have done have been just such a joy for us to hear. So we appreciate all of it. Yeah. It lifts up the whole team. Um, we'll, we'll send to you for your comments and stuff uh, or for your links rather that, you know, we've been sharing an open folder of some of the show materials with people if they want to look at design guides, um, scripts, things like that, if they're interested in getting into animation. Um, and we'll continue to share, um, you know, and try to answer questions. The one good thing about being in lockdown right now, the only good thing is that uh, we've had time to interact with people. So we'll, we'll it gets harder as we get on to our other tasks and as school begins again for our, our families. But, you know, we're always happy to try to answer questions. Oh, very cool. That's yeah, great. Really, really cool seeing so much interaction and stuff. Um, thanks again for, for being on. Um, and thanks for, listening. thanks for listening, everyone. We'll see you next time. Bye. 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 Bye.